We continue reading the second half of the 2014 Primary Dissenting Opinion in Burwell v. Hobby Lobby Stores, Inc., written by Justice Ginsburg, with whom Justice Sotomayor joins, and with whom Justice Breyer and Justice Kagan join as to all but Part 3, Section C1, which we finished reading just before concluding last episode. We continue with Part 3, Section C2. Even if Hobby Lobby and Conestoga were deemed RFRA persons, to gain an exemption, they must demonstrate that the contraceptive coverage requirement substantially burdens their exercise of religion. Congress no doubt meant the modifier substantially to carry weight. In the original draft of the RFRA, the word burden appeared unmodified. The word substantially was inserted pursuant to a clarifying amendment offered by Senators Kennedy and Hatch. In proposing the amendment, Senator Kennedy stated that RFRA, in accord with the court's pre-Smith case law, does not require the government to justify every action that has some effect on religious exercise. The court barely pauses to inquire whether any burden imposed by the contraceptive coverage requirement is substantial. Instead, it rests on the Greens and Hans' belief that providing the coverage demanded by the HHS regulations is connected to the destruction of an embryo in a way that is sufficient to make it immoral for them to provide the coverage. I agree with the court that the Green and Han families' religious convictions regarding contraception are sincerely held. But those beliefs, however deeply held, do not suffice to sustain a RFRA claim. RFRA, properly understood, distinguishes between factual allegations that plaintiffs' beliefs are sincere and of a religious nature, which a court must accept as true, and the legal conclusion that plaintiffs' religious exercise is substantially burdened, an inquiry the court must undertake. That distinction is a facet of the pre-Smith jurisprudence RFRA incorporates. Bowen v. Roy, 1986, is instructive. There, the court rejected a free exercise challenge to the government's use of a Native American child's social security number for purposes of administering benefit programs without questioning the sincerity of the father's religious belief 
that use of his daughter's social security number may harm her spirit, the court concluded that the government's internal uses of that number placed no restriction on what the father may believe or what he may do. Recognizing that the father's religious views may not accept the position that the challenged uses concerned only the government's internal affairs, the court explained that for the adjudication of a constitutional claim, the Constitution, rather than an individual's religion, must supply the frame of reference. Inattentive to this guidance, today's decision elides entirely the distinction between the sincerity of a challenger's religious belief and the substantiality of the burden placed on the challenger. Undertaking the inquiry that the court foregoes, I would conclude that the connection between the family's religious objections and the contraceptive coverage requirement is too attenuated to rank as substantial. The requirement carries no command that Hobby Lobby or Conestoga purchase or provide the contraceptives they find objectionable. Instead, it calls on the companies covered by the requirement to direct money into undifferentiated funds that finance a wide variety of benefits under comprehensive health plans. Those plans, in order to comply with the ACA, must offer contraceptive coverage without cost-sharing, just as they must cover an array of other preventive services. Importantly, the decisions whether to claim benefits under the plans are made not by Hobby Lobby or Conestoga, but by the covered employees and dependents in consultation with their health care providers. Should an employee of Hobby Lobby or Conestoga share the religious beliefs of the Greens and Hans, she is, of course, under no compulsion to use the contraceptives in question. But no individual decision by an employee and her physician, be it to use contraception, treat an infection, or have a hip replaced, is in any meaningful sense her employer's decision or action. It is doubtful that Congress, when it specified that burdens must be substantial, had in mind a linkage thus interrupted by independent decision-makers the woman and her health counselor, standing between the challenged government action and the religious exercise claimed to be infringed. Any decision to use contraceptives made by a woman covered under Hobby Lobby's or Conestoga's plan will not be propelled by the government. It will be the woman's autonomous choice informed by the physician she consults. 3. Even if one were to conclude 
that Hobby Lobby and Conestoga meet the substantial burden requirement. The government has shown that the contraceptive coverage for which the ACA provides furthers compelling interest in public health and women's well-being. Those interests are concrete, specific, and demonstrated by a wealth of empirical evidence. To recapitulate, the mandated contraception coverage enables women to avoid the health problems unintended pregnancies may visit on them and their children. The coverage helps safeguard the health of women for whom pregnancy may be hazardous, even life-threatening. And the mandate secures benefits wholly unrelated to pregnancy, preventing certain cancers, menstrual disorders, and pelvic pain. That Hobby Lobby and Conestoga resist coverage for only four of the 20 FDA-approved contraceptives does not lessen these compelling interests. Notably, the corporations exclude intrauterine devices, IUDs, devices significantly more effective and significantly more expensive than other contraceptive methods. Moreover, the court's reasoning appears to permit commercial enterprises like Hobby Lobby and Conestoga to exclude from their group health plans all forms of contraceptives. Perhaps the gravity of the interests at stake has led the court to assume, for purposes of its RFRA analysis, that the compelling interest criterion is met in these cases. It bears note, in this regard, that the cost of an IUD is nearly equivalent to a month's full-time pay for workers earning the minimum wage. That almost one-third of women would change their contraceptive method if costs were not a factor and that only one-fourth of women who request an IUD actually have one inserted after finding out how expensive it would be. Stepping back from its assumption that compelling interests support the contraceptive coverage requirement, the court notes that small employers and grandfathered plans are not subject to the requirement. If there is a compelling interest in contraceptive coverage, the court suggests, Congress would not have created these exclusions. Federal statutes often include exemptions for small employers, and such provisions have never been held to undermine the interests served by these statutes. The ACA's grandfathering provision allows a phasing-in period for compliance with a number of the Act's requirements. Once specified changes are made, grandfathered status ceases. Hobby Lobby's own situation is illustrative. By the time this litigation commenced, Hobby Lobby did not have grandfathered status. 
asked why by the district court, Hobby Lobby's counsel explained that the grandfathering requirements mean that you can't make a whole menu of changes to your plan that involve things like the amount of co-pays, the amount of co-insurance, deductibles, that sort of thing. Counsel acknowledged that just because of economic realities, our plan has to shift over time. I mean, insurance plans, as everyone knows, shift over time. The percentage of employees in grandfathered plans is steadily declining, having dropped from 56% in 2011 to 48% in 2012 to 36% in 2013. In short, far from ranking as a categorical exemption, the grandfathering provision is temporary, intended to be a means for gradually transitioning employers into mandatory coverage. The court ultimately acknowledges a critical point. RFRA's application must take adequate account of the burdens a requested accommodation may impose on non-beneficiaries. No tradition and no prior decision under RFRA allows a religion-based exemption when the accommodation would be harmful to others. Here, the very person's the contraceptive coverage requirement was designed to protect. After assuming the existence of compelling government interests, the court holds that the contraceptive coverage requirement fails to satisfy RFRA's least restrictive means test. But the government has shown that there is no less restrictive, equally effective means that would both, one, satisfy the challenger's religious objections to providing insurance coverage for certain contraceptives, which they believe cause abortions, and two, carry out the objective of the ACA's contraceptive coverage requirement to ensure that women employees receive, at no cost to them, the preventive care needed to safeguard their health and well-being. A least restrictive means cannot require employees to relinquish benefits accorded them by federal law in order to ensure that their commercial employers can adhere unreservedly to their religious tenets. Then let the government pay rather than the employees who do not share their employer's faith, the court suggests. The most straightforward alternative, the court asserts, would be for the government to assume the cost of providing contraceptives to any women who are unable to obtain them under their health insurance policies due to their employer's religious objections. The ACA, however, requires coverage of preventive services through the existing employer-based system of health insurance, 
so that employees face minimal logistical and administrative obstacles. Impeding women's receipt of benefits by requiring them to take steps to learn about and to sign up for a new government-funded and administered health benefit was scarcely what Congress contemplated. Moreover, Title X of the Public Health Service Act is the nation's only dedicated source of federal funding for safety net family planning services. Safety net programs like Title X are not designed to absorb the unmet needs of insured individuals. Note, too, that Congress declined to write into law the preferential treatment Hobby Lobby and Conestoga describe as a less restrictive alternative. And where is the stopping point to the let government pay alternative? Suppose an employer's sincerely held religious belief is offended by health coverage of vaccines or paying the minimum wage or according women equal pay for substantially similar work. Does it rank as a less restrictive alternative to require the government to provide the money or benefit to which the employer has a religion-based objection? Because the court cannot easily answer that question, it proposes something else. Extension to commercial enterprises of the accommodation already afforded to nonprofit religion based organizations. At a minimum, according to the court, such an approach would not impinge on Hobby Lobby's and Conestoga's religious belief. I have already discussed the special solicitude generally accorded nonprofit religion based organizations that exist to serve a community of believers. Solicitude never before accorded to commercial enterprises comprising employees of diverse faiths. Ultimately, the court hedges on its proposal to align for profit enterprises with non profit religion based organizations. We do not decide today whether the approach the opinion advances complies with RFRA for purposes of all religious claims. Counsel for Hobby Lobby was similarly non-committal. Asked at oral argument whether the court-proposed alternative was acceptable, counsel responded, We haven't been offered that accommodation, so we haven't had to decide what kind of objection, if any, we would make to that. Conestoga suggests that if its employees had to acquire and pay for the contraceptives to which the corporation objects on their own, a tax credit would qualify as a less restrictive alternative. A tax credit, of course, is one variety of 
let the government pay. In addition to departing from the existing employer-based system of health insurance, Conestoga's alternative would require a woman to reach into her own pocket in the first instance, and it would do nothing for the woman too poor to be aided by a tax credit. In sum, in view of what Congress sought to accomplish, i.e. comprehensive preventive care for women furnished through employer-based health plans, none of the proffered alternatives would satisfactorily serve the compelling interests to which Congress responded. Part 4 Among the path-marking pre-Smith decisions RFRA preserved is United States v. Lee, 1982. Lee, a sole proprietor engaged in farming and carpentry, was a member of the Old Order Amish. Among the path-marking pre-Smith decisions RFRA preserved is United States v. Lee, 1982. Lee, a sole proprietor engaged in farming and carpentry, was a member of the Old Order Amish. He sincerely believed that withholding Social Security taxes from his employees or paying the employer's share of such taxes would violate the Amish faith. This court held that although the obligations imposed by the social security system conflicted with Lee's religious beliefs, the burden was not unconstitutional. The government urges that Lee should control the challenges brought by Hobby Lobby and Conestoga. In contrast, Today's court dismisses Lee as a tax case. Indeed, it was a tax case, and the court in Lee homed in on the difficulty in attempting to accommodate religious beliefs in the area of taxation. But the Lee court made two key points one cannot confine to tax cases. When followers of a particular sect enter into commercial activity as a matter of choice, the court observed, the limits they accept on their own conduct as a matter of conscience and faith are not to be superimposed on statutory schemes which are binding on others in that activity. The statutory scheme of employer-based comprehensive health coverage involved in these cases is surely binding on others engaged in the same trade or business as the corporate challengers here, Hobby Lobby and Conestoga. Further, the court recognized in Lee that allowing a religion-based exemption to a commercial employer 
would operate to impose the employer's religious faith on the employees. No doubt the Greens and Hans and all who share their beliefs may decline to acquire for themselves the contraceptives in question. But that choice may not be imposed on employees who hold other beliefs. Working for Hobby Lobby or Conestoga, in other words, should not deprive employees of the preventive care available to workers at the shop next door, at least in the absence of directions from the legislature or administration to do so. Why should decisions of this order be made by Congress or the regulatory authority and not this court? Hobby Lobby and Conestoga surely do not stand alone as commercial enterprises seeking exemptions from generally applicable laws on the basis of their religious beliefs. Would RFRA require exemptions in cases of this ilk? And if not, how does the court divine which religious beliefs are worthy of accommodation and which are not? Isn't the court disarmed from making such a judgment given its recognition that courts must not presume to determine the plausibility of a religious claim? Would the exemption the court holds RFRA demands for employers with religiously grounded objections to the use of certain contraceptives extend to employers with religiously grounded objections to blood transfusions? Jehovah's Witnesses antidepressants, Scientologists, medications derived from pigs, including anesthesia, intravenous fluids, and pills coated with gelatin, certain Muslims, Jews, and Hindus, and vaccinations, Christian scientists, among others. According to Council for Hobby Lobby, each one of these cases would have to be evaluated on its own, applying the compelling interest, least restrictive alternative test. Not much help there for the lower courts bound by today's decision. The court, however, sees nothing to worry about. Today's cases, the court concludes, are concerned solely with the contraceptive mandate. Our decision should not be understood to hold that an insurance coverage mandate must necessarily fall if it conflicts with an employer's religious beliefs. Other coverage requirements, such as immunizations, may be supported by different interests for example, the need to combat the spread of infectious diseases, and may involve different arguments about the least restrictive means of providing them. 
but the court has assumed, for RFRA purposes, that the interest in women's health and well-being is compelling and has come up with no means adequate to serve that interest. The one motivating Congress to adopt the Women's Health Amendment. There is an overriding interest, I believe, in keeping the courts out of the business of evaluating the relative merits of differing religious claims, or the sincerity with which an asserted religious belief is held. Indeed, approving some religious claims while deeming others unworthy of accommodation could be perceived as favoring one religion over another. The very risk, the Establishment Clause, was designed to preclude. The court, I fear, has ventured into a minefield by its immoderate reading of RFRA. I would confine religious exemptions under that act to organizations formed for a religious purpose engaged primarily in carrying out that religious purpose and not engaged substantially in the exchange of goods or services for money beyond nominal amounts. For the reasons stated, I would reverse the judgment of the Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit and affirm the judgment of the Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit. We've reached the end of the opinion. If you'd like to request a particular opinion to be read on the show, or you just want to say hello, navigate your way to the show's website at whatscotusrotus.podbean.com and click on the Contact tab. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What Scotus Wrote Us.